the kids are at school, the washing up is done, the bins are out, the clothes are hung on the line, there's a cup of tea in hand, there are literally no more excuses. It's Friday the 10th of July and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. So welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. Neil Tucker here from the MB Medical team bringing you the Hot Topics podcast. As ever, we've got lots to talk about and particularly, again, a focus on coronavirus. So in new research, we're going to talk about an Italian paper in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the way that coronavirus affects children. We're going to have a look at the finally published data on remdesivir. Then we're going to touch on immunity from SARS-CoV-2, and we're going to have a look at post-COVID syndrome as well. But first, the news. And top of the list is that the CQC is going to resume inspections of general practice in autumn. The only thing that could put a greater fear in the eyes of a practice manager than a global pandemic and having to restructure primary care within the space of just a few days is the knowledge that the CQC is going to come knocking on your door within the next two weeks. Of course, this is a government organisation and I'm pretty sure the Chancellor wasn't going to allow CQC inspectors to be added to the list of the unemployed I'd love to think that they've taken this time to try and think how they can make the CQC inspections more of a genuine formative process, more of a collaboration than an attack. But I think we'll all believe it when we see it. The RCGP has been quite vocal this week, which is very welcome, being vocal about trying to reduce red tape and burden on primary care, pointing out that inspections, quaff, Um, quality improvement domains, deserts, these are not what we need to be worrying about right now. I hope they keep shouting and I hope someone pays attention. It hasn't been all good news for the RCGP. So a couple of weeks ago, they were in a massive social media firestorm after publicising and running a webinar which suggested that COVID-19 was a lifestyle disease. They took an absolute roasting on social media because of this. Even other specialties were getting involved in ripping the piss out of the college. Of course, to call COVID-19 a lifestyle disease implies that it is the individual's fault that they get that disease. I'm terribly sorry, sir. You appear to have very bad COVID-19. However, you are overweight, so you probably deserve it. It's pretty clear why many people were very upset with this concept. I think actually it was well-intentioned, but uh, very misjudged. And to their credit, the RCGP apologised. They said that they do not feel that COVID-19 is a lifestyle disease and um, they were sorry for any distress this had caused. And I don't think you could say fairer than that. It would be very refreshing if our nation's politicians were ever to admit to a mistake, put their hands up and say sorry. This whole episode then prompted an attack on lifestyle medicine itself, which I'm still trying to get my head around. It seemed that lifestyle medicine had been reduced purely to an issue around weight loss. Many people pointing out that social factors are greater determinants of obesity than individual factors. And this is certainly true. However, an individual who is overweight with a variety of medical problems, be it hypertension, diabetes, various MSK issues, still stands to gain as an individual if they could successfully lose weight. The biggest issue, of course, for people is trying to maintain their successful weight loss. 
And this is where the studies that do show positive outcomes for weight loss in a variety of good conditions fall down because the studies are usually short term. At the end of them, the support, the additional support that patients benefit from is withdrawn. And over time, because of all those factors in life and society, in supermarkets, in the media, all of these factors make sustaining weight loss incredibly difficult. But I don't want to fall into the same trap and um, make lifestyle medicine all about weight loss. Let's not forget there's loads of research out there. Um, if you have Parkinson's, you can be helped by doing Tai Chi. If you are elderly, you can improve your risk of falls by doing weight training. If you have cancer, you can reduce your risk of recurrence by doing exercise. If you have mental health issues, you can improve that by doing art therapy, music therapy, peer-led group activities. There's a great website called Moving Medicine, which I'll put the link in to the description of the podcast, which has a fantastic evidence review for a huge range of conditions and why various forms of activity can be helpful for them. It's all free. It's really worth checking out. Now, on to the research. And the first paper we're going to have a look at was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was about remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19. So this is the published paper of the initial data that we'd all heard about in the media a few weeks ago, which prompted a lot of excitement. So this was a placebo-controlled, randomised controlled trial looking at patients admitted to hospital with COVID-19 and lower respiratory tract involvement. By definition, they were at the more severe end of the spectrum. And on average, they were starting their treatment nine days into the course of their illness. Now, they either had placebo or they had 10 days worth of IV remdesivir. And you will remember that the findings that got the headlines a few weeks ago was that there was a median reduction in the number of days to recovery of 15 in the placebo group down to 11 in the remdesivir group. Initially, they hadn't reported on mortality, but in this paper they do. So there seems to be a reduction in mortality by 14 days um, from 12% essentially in placebo down to 7% with remdesivir. So that's a 5% absolute risk reduction. So yes, it is not a miracle cure. I don't think any of us are expecting that anymore, but it is a positive finding. Now, of course, all of the remdesivir in the entire world, it seems, has been bought by America, $3,000 for a course. And I have to say, when I heard this first, I thought $3,000 for some antivirals. Pretty pricey. Is it worth it? We start getting into some pretty interesting ethics here. Uh, the ethics around the value of a life, for instance. And I was reading a report last week, I think it was from the King's Fund, about why it is important to put value on life. They made a convincing argument. I'm just pleased that I don't have to be one of those policymakers. Remdesivir, absolute risk reduction of 5%. So numbers need to treat of 20, 20 times $3,000. Is a life worth $60,000? I guess I'd hope so. Although, of course, in America, some lives are worth $60,000 and some lives are not, depending on whether you have insurance, which is a whole other ethical debate. Anyway, it is a moot point because we can't get it. America has bought all of it. So we'll stick with dexamethasone for now, which arguably might be better and is a hell of a lot cheaper. 
Now, I know that many of you listening to this podcast have children, and I know you're excited about the summer holidays being only a week or so away and having the opportunity to spend even more time with the delightful little cherubs. For some of us, it's going to be a matter of just making it through the next six weeks until all the schools are open once again. Of course, for many clinicians and the public alike, there's nagging concerns about the safety of their children if they're sending them back to school with full classes. So they might be interested in a letter that was sent into the New England Journal of Medicine by some Italian doctors from a paediatric emergency department. So they looked at 100 children who came through their doors with confirmed COVID-19. And the most important information, I think, was that the vast majority, so almost half, had very mild disease. Um, 20% were asymptomatic, 20% had moderate disease, and only 1% had severe disease and 1% were in critical condition. And those last two groups were in children with significant existing comorbidities. It also appears that the younger the age, then the milder the illness. And thankfully, irrespective of the age and comorbidities, there was no deaths within this cohort. So it does show us that children do get coronavirus, although this data can't tell us about prevalence. And it also can't tell us whether children are likely to be able to pass this on to other household members. But it is reassuring that they are unlikely to get seriously unwell. Let's hope if they do catch coronavirus that it confers them with some immunity. So this has, of course, been the hot topic over the last few weeks, hasn't it? So have you had your antibodies tested yet? Were the results what you expected? Are we any clearer in interpreting these results? I think there must be a lot of disappointed people around the country at the moment. In the early days, we were diagnosing everyone with coronavirus if they had some kind of infective symptom. And yet a surprising number of those people's antibodies seem to be negative. It can't just be because it's a crappy test, can it? Well, of course, over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of talk about the different types of immunity the body can generate. Antibodies, of course, come from one arm of our functional immune system, so they're generated by B cells. But there's been a lot of speculation that T cell immunity is more important in SARS-CoV-2. There's been a lot of wise head nodding in my practice about T cells. And of course, the antibodies might be negative because actually it's more T cell derived immunity. And when I say to them, do you know, I don't know much about T cell immunity. Maybe you could tell me how that works. Things start becoming a little unstuck. 20 years ago at university, I did a special extended project on immunology, looking at CD4 positive T helper cells in Peyer's patches in mice gut. This current pandemic has only helped highlight that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at the time. And that was 20 years ago. There's been more than a few immunology advances since then. Now back to SARS-CoV-2, and it appears that the virus does cause a T cell response. So in the limited scientific studies that have been conducted in this area, it seems to suggest that almost everyone has a T helper cell response. So these are cells that go around doing what they say on the tin, helping the immune response. So suppressing or activating other immune cells, releasing lots of inflammatory cytokines to facilitate that process. Then the majority of people also produce a T killer cell response. So these also do what they say on the tin. These go around and kill infected cells. But the really interesting part is that about 20% of people, and I should just preface this with before you get too excited, this is a study of 10. So we're talking two people had a T cell response to SARS-CoV-2 who had never been exposed to the virus at all. And this is thought to be due to some cross-reactive immune response due to exposure to other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. 
But it's not just all about T cells, so the B cells are there as well. And it seems that everyone who is infected develops a B cell response and therefore can make antibodies. I'm sure there's got to be exceptions to this, but it seems like the vast majority. However, this doesn't necessarily last, with a report from China suggesting that after two or three months, around 60% of symptomatic patients had declining levels of IgG in their blood, prompting concerns that immunity might be quite short-lived. Still, interpretation of immunity is not as straightforward as just measuring the levels of antibodies that are currently being produced in the body. Quality of antibodies is also very important and having just a small number of high quality antibodies will confer better immunity than large numbers of low quality antibodies. Even in this group, there's hope that there will be a more prolonged T cell response. So with different parts of the immune system working together, there is potential for some longer term immunity. The only question will be whether it's strong enough to actually prevent future infections in an individual. And herd immunity, the get-out-of-jail-free card for a population? The bad news is that they reckon around two-thirds of the population will need to have been infected to develop effective herd immunity. Currently, we stand at around 5% of the population if estimates are correct. I don't even want to try and imagine the consequences of pursuing this as a valid strategy. Let's keep our fingers crossed for a vaccine, hey? Now, last thing to talk about is post-COVID syndrome. So while this is not an officially scientifically recognised term, all of us will have been seeing this in practice with patients who were infected in the early days and still have continuing symptoms months later. The clinical course of COVID-19 after the acute stage seems to be highly unpredictable. Some people will make a full recovery, others will still be getting symptoms weeks and weeks or months and months later, and some will be having intermittent symptoms that seem to come and go. And longer lasting symptoms do appear to be very, very common. So a research letter published in JAMA last week from Italy followed up 140 patients for an average of two months after COVID-19 infection. And it found that only one in eight patients had no residual symptoms at that two month mark. None of the groups still had fever or signs of acute infection, but over half had three or more ongoing symptoms, most commonly fatigue dyspnea, joint pains and chest pain. Almost half reported a worsened quality of life than before infection. So this is some of the clearest data that we've had published on what survivors can expect after COVID-19. But even this is only a short follow-up. Two months is interesting, but what happens after six months or 12 months? What happens after 10 years? And of course, we can't know that yet because the pandemic hasn't been going on that long. But there are lessons that we can learn from people who are recovering from critical illness or who have had SARS and MERS in the past. Now, a month ago, the NHS published a document entitled Aftercare Needs of Inpatients Recovering from COVID-19. This went under the radar, I think, in primary care. Many of us had been unaware of this, possibly because it's referring to ex-inpatients rather than patients that we've been managing in the community. I think there's a lot of crossover here. Of course, we'll be managing all of these patients within the community anyway. So we do need to be aware about this document and it's got lots of very interesting insights in it. 
I talked a bit about this in a blog on the mbmedical.com website this week. So um, do have a look at that. But for me, these are the most interesting findings. So a lot of people have described a waxing and waning of their symptoms. So after the initial acute symptoms has resolved, they often then feel much better. And then out of the blue, a few days later, bam, they are hit by marked fatigue, maybe feeling feverish again, generally feeling unwell. It might last a day or two and then it gets better. You think it's over and then once again it occurs. Interestingly, SARS-CoV-2 is not the only virus that causes this kind of pattern. So um, dengue fever can often have a similar recovery for people. Fatigue has been a really big problem for lots of people. And particularly in the most severe, we probably shouldn't be surprised by this. So at least 10% of people after a critical illness have ongoing fatigue for months and months, which is probably a separate process from what we might think of post-viral fatigue. Post-viral fatigue is a genuine physiological phenomenon in itself, and as the Italian paper shows, is extremely common, although there's a lot of uncertainty about the levels that we might expect over an extended period of time. There are going to be some prolonged physical and psychological sequelae of COVID-19 as well. Respiratory symptoms are, of course, one of the most prominent and predominant symptoms that people get from COVID-19. And there's a general feeling that there's going to be quite a lot of people that have some ongoing long-term effects from this. So fibrosis is likely to be very common. That's already been seen. It's largely generated by ventilation rather than the illness itself. And in some patients, it seems to improve relatively rapidly. In others, it seems to persist. It seems very unpredictable. Also in this NHS document, they estimate that up to 5% of people with severe COVID-19 pneumonia will develop bronchiectasis. The paper does make some practical recommendations for patients and for primary care clinicians. Patients with ongoing respiratory symptoms merit um, pulmonary rehab, which ideally would start six to eight weeks after discharge. They recommend that if someone had an abnormal x-ray with COVID-19, that they have a follow-up x-ray at 12 weeks to make sure that everything has improved, or indeed at six weeks if there was any concern around cancer risk. And then it suggests that people who continue to have respiratory symptoms or continuing x-ray changes should be referred for lung function tests and CT follow-up. In a similar vein, those who have had cardiac complications and have persisting impairment should be referred for cardiac rehab. Fatigue is likely to be a major challenge for patients and for us alike. And there's been some guidance for patients published by the Royal College of Occupational Therapists on how to manage persistent fatigue and trying to improve their recovery. And I'll put a link to that on the podcast description as well. In terms of mental health problems, these are possibly going to be significant. So in people who have been on critical care with acute respiratory dist- distress syndrome, around 4 in 10 will have anxiety, 3 in 10 depression, 2 in 10 PTSD, up to 2 years after their illness. And that's only 2 years because that's as far as the studies were following these patients up for. And then cognitive impairment could be a big problem too. So 70% of people with a critical illness have delirium and one in five still have it six months later. Now, it may be that this is simply an unmasking of some underlying mild cognitive impairment, but many of these patients never recover the cognitive function that they had prior to their illness. 
thankfully, the health service is trying to respond to these issues and is looking to set up coronavirus rehab centres around the country. Clearly, these cannot come soon enough. Quite how they're going to fund them and staff them, I have absolutely no idea. I highly suspect, as I know you will too, that a lot of the work will ultimately fall upon us in primary care. We will be the ones managing patients' ongoing concerns and trying to help them through this difficult period. There is a very useful document that has been published by Homerton Hospital, which is a post-COVID-19 patient information pack. And it's got lots and lots of really useful guidance for people about how they can manage their ongoing symptoms. So how to manage ongoing breathlessness, how to manage fatigue, signposts for mental health issues and such like. I will put a link to that below as well. So that's it for today, folks. Thanks for joining us once again. Remember, you can get hold of us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics on Facebook, and you can email us as well, hottopics at mbmedical.com. If you've come across any interesting articles or useful resources, then please do share them with me and I can pass them on to everyone else. And as ever, remember to take a little bit of time for yourself. Go outside, enjoy the weather, but don't leave your rubbish all over Bournemouth Beach. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye bye.